We're in Mark 7. And we'll start in verse 24 today. I told Zach that I hate using music stands because they fall over. And if this one falls over, he has to buy my lunch all week long. Okay, so we're going to pray that maybe a mighty wind of God sweeps through this place. So, Father, in Jesus' name, we love you. We exalt you. We say you're worthy of all glory, honor, praise, dominion. There's no one like you. All of the heavens surround you and fall. And so this morning, we bow low before your glory. And we ask that you and you alone would be exalted in this place. It's been our heart cry, Lord, that there would be a fresh revelation of your majesty and that every demonic attempt to confuse all scales on eyes, all hardness of heart would come down today in Jesus' name. And that our eyes and ears would perceive and understand your majesty, your greatness, your awesome love towards your children. We love you, Christ Jesus. We give you all praise in Jesus' name. Somebody say amen. Amen. Well, last week we talked about devotion and what devotion is. I told you that in our church language, we say a lot, we're a church that's after full devotion for Christ Jesus. And what we mean by that is not just that we want to be a people who have devotional time in the morning, although we do want to be a people who are disciplined in that area. What we mean by saying we're after full devotion is that the entirety of our affections, again, that's a a phrase Jonathan Edwards would use, or the the center of our will, our hearts would be fully devoted to Jesus, fully given over to Jesus, right? Like as, as created beings in God's image, we, ha- we are allowed to have hobbies. Like we are allowed to, um, like I enjoy being on the water and fishing, but there are some days I don't want to be on the water. I just don't want to go out. It's too hot. There is no day where I do not want to be in love with Jesus, does this make sense? Like there's, there's a place in our personalities where we can enjoy music. Um, but there's a place in our affections, in our, and what we called last week, the throne of our heart, where it's like, I am going to love God with all of me, no matter what. And the ups and downs and lows of life, I'm going to love God. And God is looking for a people. We want to be the kind of church that's not just a Sunday morning. We don't want to be the kind of church that blesses God when the sun's shining. We want to be the kind of people that are fully given over to him in and out of season, right? We talked about that last week, devotion. I want to talk to you this week uh, from the text, obviously, um, about a concept that I think is kind of the, the the other side of the coin of devotion, a twin sister of devotion is what, what I would call desperation. Because many times devotion flows from the affection, right? Devotion flows from what we love and what we celebrate. And devotion uh, is so powerful in that way. Um, David says, my cup overflows. But we know that there are times in the Christian life where you don't walk in the room overflowing with affection, but you come in the room dry and desperate. Biblically speaking, desperation is not less than devotion. Okay, so God says, the the broken and contrite, I will not deny. And so many times we think, when I come to church, I have to come to church with full devotion mode, overflowing with affection. I have to come full and happy. 
you should come to church full and happy some days. But there are days where you come empty and wrung out, but just as committed. Okay, and that's the twin sister of devotion and desperation. Because on one hand, in devotion, I'm coming celebrating. I'm doggedly committed to the glory of God. In my desperation, I am equally as doggedly committed to the glory of God. I am just confessing that I'm weak this morning. Right, so when I say um, we want to come and drink from the fountains of living water, sometimes we come full, but coming thirsty is is no less valuable because you, when we come in desperation, we come to the right place, saying to Jesus, "I am sick, I am tired, I am desperate, but I'm not letting go of your garment. I'm not going to let you go today." And in that sense, desperation is beautiful in God's sight. He wants His people to learn it. I've been, been listening to and reading against some of Jackie Pollinger's life. Um, she's still alive, so. Um, but one of the greatest missionaries um, for years, I mean, her stories are incredible. And um, she's, she's uh, so many times ministering to drug addicts who are just totally strung out. And sometimes these, these addicts or people who have struggled with alcoholism or people who have wrestled through um, great, hard seasons in life, they, they learn desperation quicker than everyone else. And, and that's actually an advantage because some of us, um, we get desperate and we walk into church, but we're so concerned with how we appear socially that we never come and throw ourselves before the feet of Jesus. And what we're going to look at today, and we'll see over and over in the gospels is that desperation requires abandonment. And that's one of the reasons Forgive me because I'm just talking now, but they made me sit down. And so it's less formal or something. I don't know. Um, one of the reasons I cherish, um, I, I had a Pentecostal roots, a season of being at Pentecostal churches. And doctrinally speaking, there might be some variances in classic Pentecostalism and where I am today, doctrinally speaking. But when you get into a, a I was raised in a high church setting. You know what I mean by high church? Um, put together setting, traditional setting. And I, and I think people would come into that church with great addictions, with great depression, with great agony, but they couldn't undo their tie to get in the carpet. When I transitioned into a Pentecostal setting, um, Pentecostals were traditionally speaking poor. And they always talked about coming from the other side of the railroad track. And, and sometimes people who come from the other side of the railroad track, when they are desperate, um, they're, they're on the carpet crying and dancing and jumping and shouting. I'd rather build here a culture of desperation. And I understand that we live in a wealthy community with a lot of successful businessmen and businesswomen. And we live in a setting where it's very easy to put ourselves together. But when we get in the presence of God, you have got to learn abandonment to get a hold of the garment of Jesus and not let go. Sometimes rolling and shouting and crying is totally appropriate. Totally appropriate. And so I, as we talked about devotion last week, and this week we're going to talk about desperation, I want to just lobby that before us. We want to be the kind of church, the kind of people who rush to the altar in seasons of trial, who rush to the altar with our needs, not the kind of people who want to look put together so we'll never admit to anyone else what we're going through. That's garbage spirituality. 
Now, let me read to you from our text this morning, Mark chapter 7. And and I want to do my best to just kind of draw these points out. We talked, if I could just give you a little context before we transition. The beginning of Mark 7, do you remember there's this delegation of scribes from Jerusalem again? That keeps happening. There are the, the best of the best scholars being sent from Jerusalem in groups to try to nitpick or critique Jesus' ministry with hopes of grabbing the rug and ripping it out from under him. They're doing everything they can to find a weakness and a flaw and to expose it so that Jesus will lose momentum. Well, these scribes, they partnered with some Pharisees. They're trying to nitpick Jesus' ministry, and all they can find is that Jesus' disciples are not washing their hands before they eat. So this is a tradition um, uh, uh, of, of in the Mishnah, a, tr- a Jewish tradition, in which people are supposed to go through these ritual washings before they partake in a meal. This is not, in this setting, this is not Old Testament law. This is oral tradition that men taught. And so Jesus says, you throw away God's word given to us in the scripture all the time, and then you come and try to critique me on an oral tradition that my disciples don't follow? So Jesus is highly frustrated Then he turns in Mark 7, we talked about this last week, he turned and he said to the crowd, hear me. In other words, he said, you need to listen to what I'm about to say because you've been indoctrinated, you've been culturally baptized in a type of spirituality that is not pure. Hear me, he says, what goes into your mouth cannot defile you. In other words, the the external regulations, the do not touch, do not taste. Those regulations do not create purity. Jesus says what flows from the heart, that's where adultery lies. That's where evil lies. That's where sexual immorality lies. And we're getting like a good glimpse on the innate sinful nature of humanity. Jesus is saying the issue here is not whether or not you wash your hands when you eat. The issue here is what you've allowed to capture your your heart, steal your worship. Now, it's really fascinating that we go from um, talking about what what is purity and what is unclean, and then when we turn today, we're going to turn right into a setting where a Gentile woman who is ceremonially uh, speaking unclean comes and grabs hold of Jesus. And so I'll try to explain it as we go, but there's this real stark contrast of, of Jesus saying, Purity has nothing to do with the external. It has everything to do with what's going on in your heart. And then we're going to find a woman today who is externally unclean, but her heart is so desperate that God calls her. God God heals and delivers. Now, I need you to think well. I don't want to have to spend the time to, to clarify everything I say. But obviously we're not Gnostics. Like there are external external regulations such as if you you, married men, you are not to touch another man's wife. That's obviously an external manifestation of sin. But what Jesus is teaching is that the sin doesn't start when you touch another man's wife. The sin started in your heart a long time ago when you let your eyes chase after her, right? Like I I don't want to spend the time to flesh all that out today, but think well about what we're saying. Okay. Mark chapter 7, verse 24. You guys okay so far? We're on the same page? From there, he arose, he being Jesus. And he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. 
But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. He said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Now, let's let's work through this slowly because there's some fascinating things happening in this text. It's safe to say that after the two previous experiences, one, Jesus has rebuked this, this, this delegation of scribes and Pharisees. He's had a public debate, a public showdown with scribes and Pharisees. Then he turns to the crowd and he begins to say, hear me, listen to me. You have a false spirituality. You can feel that there is a frustration in Jesus's heart here. Now, in Jesus's humanity, we find in the text that he weeps at Lazarus's temple. He leaps, weeps in frustration as he looks out over Jerusalem. Jesus feels emotion. Now, his emotion uh, is always pure and holy and righteous. But even when he walks into the temple and there's many people selling sacrifices, making money um, and robbing people really off of selling sacrifices in the temple, and he starts flipping over tables and making a whip, you would call that frustration. A holy frustration, yes. Not sinful, but frustration. Jesus feels frustration. I think it's safe to say at this point in Jesus's ministry, he is, he is frustrated, vexed, ang- angry, maybe in a righteous way. And so what the scripture tells us is that Jesus turns and he goes to a Gentile region, the region of Tyre and Sidon. He entered a house and he didn't want anyone to know. Jesus was an introvert. Just, I'm just kidding. I can't prove that, but I feel good. When I read that part, I'm like, yeah, you, you didn't, Jesus, want anyone to know. You're justified, man. He, he didn't, but, but feel it. Like he, he's frustrated with these encounters. He turns and he wants to be alone. So he goes somewhere into a region that's not Jewish and he goes into a house and he wants to hide. He doesn't want anyone to know. He needs some solitude. Yet, the scripture says, he could not be hidden. So what we find is that a Gentile woman, a desperate woman, makes her way to the house. The scripture says that she throws herself at his feet. The Greek there communicates that she continually, kind of desperately, keeps falling before him. Um, She's just over and over bowing herself at his feet. Again, Jesus is tired, emotionally frustrated, wants to be alone. But we learn something in the Gospels over and over, and I think we find it in the Psalms. Again, Jesus does not reject the broken and contrite. When you get desperate, Jesus is does not turn the desperate away. His heart, for some reason, this is in the character of God. This is a, a theological declaration in the character of God there is an attraction to desperation. What we see in the text again 
She is, Mark calls her Syrophoenician. Matthew calls her a Canaanite woman. That she has Canaanite lineage. So she's a Gentile. She's grown up a pagan. Okay, that's safe to say. She's grown up in pagan religion. So ceremonially speaking, we have a pagan, unclean woman right now. Obviously, there is a um, a cultural appropriateness in which a woman should act in the presence of a man which is being crossed here. She's throwing herself as an unclean Gentile woman, many times not even welcome in the same house as a Jewish man. So now she's in the house throwing herself down any cultural norm that would say to this woman, you should not, has been abandoned. So again, I want to say to us, in in American Christianity, it is not always culturally appropriate to throw yourself in the altar, but biblically speaking, it is perfectly appropriate to throw yourself in the altar. And to get to, to learn the lesson in the text today, to learn desperation, at some point, this is why addicts and alcoholics and people who have been through great sexual sins sometimes learn this lesson quicker because they learned a long time ago to not care what the crowds are thinking about them. They threw away ego a while ago. But there is a, re- a requirement here for us when we find ourselves between a rock and a hard place to not allow the opinions or the eyes of the crowd to hinder us from crossing that cultural barrier and hitting the carpet and crying out and saying, Jesus, I'm not going to let you go. We, we laugh and we mock in our culture people who jump and worship. We laugh and we mock when people cry and worship. And I want to tell you today that biblically speaking, David says, man, watch me get more undignified than this. And this is, if I could say this without in any way throwing stones, this is where I'd say I'd just much rather be in a Pentecostal setting with people who threw away their ego a long time ago, worshiping, exhorting God, getting desperate in the altar, than I'd rather than be in a setting where everyone's too buttoned up to admit that we've got some real issues happening. She crosses every cultural barrier. She says, I'm going to grab you. And, and again, the Greek here communicates her kind of saying, like, I'm going to, I'm going to keep falling. I'm, I'm not going to stop Jesus. I'm going to keep coming. And she's appealing to a part of Jesus' character that the scripture over and over communicates. The broken and contrite, he won't deny. Now, she says to Jesus, I have a daughter who has a demonic issue. I need you to heal her. I want to say... Man, if I could not over-allegorize this text, I don't mean to over-drive this point home. But I want to say that as a church, as a people, we need to recognize that we've got some major demonic issues in the generations. Okay, and I, I'm, I'm not trying to stretch this text too far, but but sometimes you look at what's happening in our school system. You look at the way our children are being indoctrinated. You look at the desperate place we're in and you allow desperation to rise up in your heart, and you come with tears and intercession. But we are tearless. We're in many cases prayerless. And it's like we're watching a generation and generations in honesty, because I don't know if you know that we didn't just get here overnight. right? We, we, the, the 60s did a lot for us. We're, we're watching generations rot. And many times, the, the, the church, the, the, if you will, the, 
the mothers, the fathers in the church are watching a rotting and a decaying happening in our society, but we haven't learned desperation. Because again, that would be inappropriate. She comes and she says, my daughter is demonically oppressed, demonized, and I need you to do something. I need you, Jesus, to do something. Now, the way that Jesus responds is fascinating, and it's caused so much debate in, in, in honesty in our current day in the church today. Jesus says, it is not right to give the bread, the children's bread, to the dogs. He's pointing out that his messianic ministry, that the Messiah is sent to the Jews first. And he uses the word, it's not right to give bread to the dogs first. I I am called to Jews first. Now, this is a biblical concept. I'm not one to embrace what's called replacement theology. I do not believe that the church in every way has replaced national ethnic Israel. I think when you study Romans 9 through 11, you see that God has a plan and a purpose still for national ethnic Israel. So the idea that we've been grafted into the vine, this is Romans 9 through 11, we've been grafted into the vine. We shouldn't be proud, Gentiles, because we're grafted into something that started before us. And he says that there will be a final day when all the house of Israel will be saved. Now, I understand Ephesians 2, the idea that there is one new man in Christ Jesus, that in Jesus, Jew and Gentile alike come together and one new man is created before God. I get that. But that text is not a place that that throws away all all, all natural distinctions. In other words, like Paul's going to say, you're one new man in Christ. There's no longer male or female, Jew or Gentile, slave or freeman. You're one in Christ. And then he turns to Ephesians 5 and says, husbands, you need to lead in this way. And wives, you need to lead, you need to submit and serve in this way. So even in Ephesians 5, we learn that the distinction between husband and wife is not thrown away. You guys understand what I'm trying to say? Many people go to the Ephesians 2 text and say, there are no longer any gender structures in the kingdom because we're one new man in Christ. Like, no, he turns in a couple chapters and reminds us that there are those distinctions. But there is, there is a oneness an equality, an equalness in Christ that's taught in Ephesians 2. But Ephesians 2, again, does not teach that there's no longer any need or any purpose for national ethnic Israel. You guys following me so far? That's probably a conversation for another day. Um, but, but it comes alive in this text because Jesus is saying, Gentiles are second, Jews first. And, and again, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone. And at this point, we all say, yes. Then he says, to the Jew first and also the Greek. And no one memorizes that part. There there is a sense in which which Jesus is playing, if you will, the devil's advocate here. He is, he is, he, I'll show you in a second how he's, He's arguing in a certain way to try to get the woman to argue back. That's what good teachers do. They give false, not not false concepts per se, but they're trying to provoke the right answer. But Jesus is appealing to the idea that, that, that his ministry is first to the Jews, and there's a humility required to acknowledge that when we come before God, everything in God's heart and purpose, is not, it doesn't revolve around me. The church today has to have a humility to acknowledge that God still has purposes for national, national ethnic Israel. 
It's not, not necessarily, everything's not all about me. I would really like it to be. If we could work that out somehow, that would be awesome. So what he says to her is actually um, a cultural insult that's a little demeaning. Because he called Jews children, and he called Gentiles dogs. Now that happens, uh, Jews oftentimes referred to Gentiles as dogs, as a rabid, wild, unclean beast eating dead things. Dogs is an insult. Now, many scholars want to point out that Jesus didn't use the worst word for dog. He used the word that was more like a family pet. Um, okay. So he's saying that the the Jews in this scenario are the children of Abraham who he's come to give bread to, and he's not going to give the bread to the dogs. Now, to show you that dog is an insult, remember Paul in Philippians chapter 3, he flips this insult on its head by calling Jews dogs. The, The Jews that were trying to teach that circumcision was a requirement for salvation, Paul says this in in Philippians 3, 2, look out for the, the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. That's a term referring to circumcision. And so Paul even uses that cultural insult dog and he flips it back on the Jews. So here, this woman comes desperate, right? I've got a daughter who's demonized. I know you want some alone time right now. I really don't care. I've got an issue. And I understand I'm a woman and you're a man and I'm a Jew, I'm a Gentile, an unclean woman and you're a Jew. And I'm not supposed to even be in the same house with you, but I don't care. I've got an issue. And Jesus says to her, he gives her this kind of cultural insult. He says, this ministry, this bread is for Jews first. And many of us in that moment, we would rise up with offense and we would have stormed out of the room. You have to, to embrace desperation, learn to, to, to power through offense and humility. Let me show, let me show you this quickly. John the Baptist, Jesus says is the greatest prophet of his day, right? Like his ministry is wonderful. The influence of his ministry is so underrated in our, our current culture. If you look at Josephus, if you look at historians in the first century, John the Baptist's ministry was so profoundly influential. So the greatest moment in John the Baptist's ministry, the height, the peak, he looks at the crowds as Jesus strolls before him and he says, behold, the lamb of God. Two times he says, behold, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. That's the greatest prophecy that John the Baptist ever uttered. And we learn in John chapter one, that many of John the Baptist's own disciples began to follow Jesus. So later in John the Baptist's ministry, as Jesus' disciples are baptizing more people than him, some come and say, John, his disciples are baptizing more than you now. Don't you care? And John says, the, when the, the friend of the bridegroom rejoices at the groom's voice. In other words, I'm rejoicing that his ministry is prospering and mine's declining. I'm thankful that he is getting attention and I am losing prominence. I'm thankful. I rejoice the height of his ministry. But then there's a day when he finds himself in prison under Herod and he begins to grow in discouragement because there was, on one hand, John understood that the Messiah was going to be a lamb that would be slain for the sins of the world. Messiah would die, would bleed for the nation. 
But on the other hand, there was this great expectation that Messiah would be a military leader. And so now John's going, look, I just gave you my entire ministry. I decreased and you increased. And now I'm sitting in prison. And you've yet to set me free. You've yet to bring liberation. You haven't overthrown Herod yet. Israel's still under Roman control. Are you the Messiah? So this moment of weakness, he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one? Do you remember what Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 4 and 6? He answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And then he says this, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When Jesus doesn't do what we think Jesus should do, when we think Jesus should do it, there is always an opportunity to grow offended by him. Now, let me just wade into something for a minute. In many of our like inner healing conversations, if you're familiar with inner healing discipleship or, or counseling, we often ask people, do you need to forgive yourself? And that's a very, very valid claim. Sometimes we do need to forgive ourselves. But sometimes people will say, do you need to forgive God? And, and I know what we mean by that. But I just want to say that God needs no forgiveness, ever. Everything he does is righteous, just, and true. He doesn't need to be forgiven. You need to repent of growing offended by him. Does this make sense? And so we, we need to stop that language because what we're telling people is God didn't do what you wanted him to do. So you got offended. So let's, let's pray and you can forgive God. God just does not need to be forgiven. Okay. What you're really saying is God didn't do what you wanted him to do when you wanted him to do it. So you got frustrated and quit walking in obedience and holiness and desperation. You guys following me? And so I, we're on, we're on the Tanzania trip. Thank you guys so much. You supported. And we're doing ministry and a young man comes, uh, comes and it was a strange thing that I, 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 I guess I'd never seen. Maybe I'm ignorant, but he was, um, he kept falling asleep, like just totally falling asleep as, as you're talking to him, just totally falling asleep. His mom said she found him in the market one day asleep. She didn't know what happened. He just kept falling asleep. So we're praying for him and I'm like pulling all the things out I can think of and he, you know, is there anything demonic here happening? I'm leaning in, I'm rebuking, I'm laying my hands on, I'm believing for, the team is praying, we're pressing. For a moment, he wakes up and looks at me with like clarity, and I'm like, we got him, yes, we got him. And I start to celebrate, thank you, Jesus. And the kid goes, right back to sleep. And I walked into a meeting with, I was teaching a group of pastors the next day, and they said, so many people in our community fake miracles. And how do we deal with the fact that many people are faking miracles? And I said, we don't deal with the fact that people are faking miracles by quit praying, quitting to pray for them. That's not how you deal with it. Like there has to be a radical honesty in the church that says, I don't know, God, why you didn't heal this kid. I'm anointed, God. Like, I don't know if you know it or not. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know why there wasn't healing, but all I could do was look the mom in the face and say, look, I want, I want you to get home tonight. I want you to pray for this kid. I want you to, I want you to get his dad, and I want y'all to pray and bless him. You just get a hold of God and not let go. Keep pressing. This kid desperately needed healing. It was totally debilitating. Keep pressing. Keep praying. Grow in desperation. You have to learn, and I have to learn, to be a church that when God doesn't answer our prayers, the moment we want him to answer our prayers, that we keep 
pressing and growing and crying anyway. Many of us quit on prayer because we thought it was a magic gumball machine. And I'm telling you that I am learning to keep contending, to keep pressing, to keep praying. And and I've seen God answer prayers over years now. Again, I'm wildly old. I have to sit to preach now. I've I've, I've seen God begin to answer prayers like two or three years down the road as I've kept praying and kept pressing. And everything's not on my timeline. And if you think God has to operate on your timeline, you'll quit. And so what I wanted to show you earlier, and I I forgot to read this at the start, is John Calvin said about this text that sometimes it seems like God shut the door on you. But in reality, he wanted to see if your faith would begin to try to leak through the cracks. And so what Calvin was saying is that in this conversation, when Jesus says, it's not right to give the dogs what belongs to the children, Jesus is shutting the door slightly just to see if she has enough faith to keep pushing on it. That's God's prerogative. There are times where we find ourselves in the wilderness and God doesn't just bathe us in living water because God is trying to teach us to grow in desperation. And what you'll do is, if you allow a fence to settle in, you'll turn your back and walk away and say, God doesn't work or, or, or Jesus' prayer doesn't work or you'll start to live in sin because you got tired. You'll find your pleasure somewhere else. You'll start to find your pleasure somewhere else rather than pushing on the door and letting your faith leak through the cracks. So the woman says to Jesus with great boldness, yes, you're right. It's not right to give dogs the children's bread. She's acknowledging in the statement, and I know this is a big theological claim, but I'm just honestly allowing the text to flesh. She's acknowledging the statement, I am unclean. I am a daughter of the Canaanites. I I have been raised in paganism. I understand that in Judaism, I would be an outsider. I get that, Jesus. I'll admit that. I'll own that insult. And in some sense, Christianity requires that you own that as well. Like you don't come to the cross and receive salvation without acknowledging that you were ate up with sin. That's why many people won't come to the cross because they're not willing to admit that they actually need it. Right? You you don't get to stand here as if you're worthy of redemption. You're just not. So she says to Jesus, yeah, okay, I'll own that. I'm the dog. I get it. I'm unclean. But even the dogs get to eat the crumbs. Now, what did she just say to Jesus? One, she said, again, in humility, I'll wear that insult. Two, she said, Jesus, let's just acknowledge here that this is crumbs for you. This is not your bread. Do you, you see what I'm saying? She says, Jesus, I am not asking you to turn all of your messianic ministry and aim it at my Gentile community. I'm not asking you, Jesus, that I'd be the center of your attention. I'm not asking you, Jesus, for hours and hours of your time. This is easy for you. This is not the bread. What faith is rising up in this woman? She's saying, this is just crumbs. This is just crumbs. And she captures, so so humility, desperation requires humility. You'll never come to the altar and weep and cry out and hold on to Jesus if you're too proud to bow. That may be the greatest sickness in the American church. We're too proud to bow. Two, it requires faith. This kind of wild faith that says to God, 
my position is not that big of a deal for you. And just keeps coming, keeps knocking, keeps crying. Thirdly, she's, she's acknowledged the heart of God. She has captured this theological conviction, this, this truth that God loves the broken. So when David sins with Bathsheba and he comes in repentance, David says, the broken, you won't deny. Not, I hope that. He, it's a, that, is a, that is a theological confession. You never deny the desperate. And it's as if Jesus leans just in and says, you're exactly right, I don't. I actually don't deny the desperate. So he says to the woman, go on your way. She's healed. Now notice again, by saying, go on your way, she's healed. Jesus is saying, you're right, this is crumbs. You don't have to bring her, and I don't need to put my hands on her, and we don't have to jump around, and I don't need to roll and yell and shout. Just go home. She's healed. That's done. Jesus, Jesus is saying, you're, you're right that my ministry is first to the Jews. You're also right that, that this is nothing for me. You're also right that I love your heart right now. Now, now many liberal scholars who are too smart for their own good. And I'll, golly, if I could just be a little crass for a second, I'd stay as far away from these churches as you possibly can. There are many standing in pulpits today who will say, this is a moment of Jesus's own racism, Jesus's own misogyny. Oh, if you haven't heard it, I promise you it's everywhere. This is not Jesus's racism or misogyny. This is Jesus saying, I'm going to shut the door just a little bit because I'm giving you an opportunity to walk away offended or to learn desperation. And the moment she shows an inkling of desperation, Jesus says, good God, I love it. I love it. In church, there are times where you find yourself in the wilderness and you're going, I'm dry, I'm tired, I can't go on. I'm devoted. I've got devotion, man. I come to church every week. I'm a person of devotion, but my cup does not overflow right now. God, fill me, please. And God made delay. For another week longer, another two weeks longer, and many of us again start throwing our hands up, turning and finding another lover, another pleasure. But God is not denying you because he doesn't love you. God is saying, I'm teaching you to learn desperation. Live in the dryness for a while and learn to really cry, to really pray, to really press. There's a lesson to be learned. And it's his prerogative to teach his children the lessons that he wants to teach them when and where he wants to teach them the lessons. We've got to, we've got to, in our devotion, the weeks that we feel full, we come and shout and we come and dance. In our desperation, the weeks when we're tired, you got a bad diagnosis, your kids are far from God and you're feeling the pain, you don't stay home and sleep. And by for God's sake, you don't fake it. It's not faith to walk in the room and pretend like you have no problems. I hate it. Oh, gosh, forgive me. I hate when people start saying, don't confess that. I say my kid, you say your kids are far from God. Don't confess that. I'm not confessing anything. I'm acknowledging the truth. And I'm allowing the truth to break me. And so so we, we don't do fake in church. We have weeks of great celebration and devotion and joy in Jesus and the weeks where you walk in with agony, you wear it. And you come to the altar and you get in God's face and you say, this is crumbs. Give it to me, please. 
I think God is looking for his church in this hour to learn desperation and to, I, I pray constantly, 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 constantly that God would baptize this church in humility, baptize us in humility because God resists the proud. I get that. I've learned that lesson. Part of us learning to be baptized in humility, to being filled, clothed in lowliness is at some point we've got to cross the barrier to step into desperation. To say, I have no other lover and I have no other solution. You're it. And I'm not going anywhere. Desperation says, I'm not going to the shaman down the street, Jesus. You're it. You happen to be in my town. I get you're tired. I'm not going to the rabbi down the street. I'm here for you. Desperation says, you're it. You're my plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G. So the desperation and devotion go hand in hand. These things we've got to learn. These things we've got to find. Why don't you go ahead and stand to your feet. We'll get ready to close. Zach, would you come for me? Michelle, come for me too. Annie, get, get us in place. Get some altars in place for me. Thank you. I, I just want to pray for a second. I'm going to let... Um, Michelle, there were a few prophetic words that I think are in line with where we are. I'm going to let Michelle lead us. But before I slide out and slide over to Bluffton, I just want to pray. Father, in Jesus' most holy name, I ask that you would fill this house with the desperate. Lord, if we've grown offended with you, would you forgive us and would you heal our hearts? With these altars, no tears, Lord, when our kids are sick, when a generation rots, will we be people who come and throw ourselves before you and plead as our one and only? We love you. So even now, if there's some in this room and you're like, man, my kids are far or I'm desperate, I'm sick, I'm tired, I'm in a dry season, I want you to go ahead and come. Just go ahead and make your way. I want some of us just to begin to go ahead and come and kneel. Maybe your marriage is just struggling. You just need God. Come on, this is the place. This is the time. An altar ministry, if you want to just kind of walk by and lay your hands on, that would be great. And if there are people who need direct ministry, that's good too. Wherever you sense the Lord leading you. Come on, you alone, Jesus. You alone, Jesus. Michelle, come for us. Thank you.